penned to Timothy, who was a pastor at a church called Ephesus. And the understanding uh, is behind this letter, uh, or Paul's expectation behind this letter, was that uh, Timothy would read this letter from him to the church as it was gathered. And so, um, so if you will, picture for a moment me opening up 1 Timothy and reading it uh, in its entirety. And if you haven't read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, for that matter, in its entirety, I would encourage you uh, to do that. But that is uh, exactly the expectation that the Apostle Paul would have had uh, for Timothy and for the Ephesian elders is that this letter would have been read amongst the assembly. And and what we see uh, as we uh, begin to venture in chapter 2, and you'll hear me say this several times this morning, but I'll continue to say this over the course of our uh, journey through this uh, letter together, as we begin to see a um, uh, the Apostle Paul give some instructions as it relates to how we should function as we gather, uh, and uh, and certainly how we function as we should as we gather as we worship corporately each and every Lord's Day has an impact on the way that we live our lives uh, as individual uh, Christians uh, the other six days of the week. And my prayer is is that by God's grace uh, we will see that. Uh, but I have a lot to cover this morning, and uh, thankfully uh, Clark preached uh, a very short sermon last week, and he told me that I could have the unused minutes for this morning. <clears throat> so, uh, so I appreciate that, Clark. But uh, chapter 2, starting with verse 8, we're going to go down to verse 15. Uh, these are the words of God. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, to the church of Ephesus, Ephesus under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote these words. I desire then, okay, in, in, in light uh, uh, of the finished far-reaching work of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger, without quarreling. Verse 9, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, in gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she'll be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. No potential pitfalls in that passage of Scripture. <laughs> but <clears throat> before I pray, uh, one of the things that I just want to ask us or, or challenge us with as a congregation is we, we have to approach any text of Scripture uh, with humility, Right? We have to approach any text of Scripture if, if we profess to be Christian, Christians with a willingness to submit to what it says. Uh, but a passage like this requires perhaps even more uh, grace, even more humility when we work through it. And I want to take this uh, time this morning to just highlight for us how uncomfortable a passage like this uh, can make us feel, right? The, in fact, the very existence of these instructions, it gives evidence to us just how easy it is for us to get uh, God's ordering of things wrong. And for some of us, as I, as I read God's holy, inspired word, we, we perhaps even get shifty in our seats, right? And instead of seeing God's liberating and beautiful ordering of things and internalizing the reality that this is a, a good passage, we may feel a bit knotted up on the inside. Right? A passage like this can, can serve as a test case for us on how well we've been discipled, if you will, in ways that are contrary to God, in ways that are contrary to God's Word. And, and this passage of Scripture, in fact, is, is, is labeled in some circles as misogynistic, right? Ironically enough, by people who determine what misogynistic is, 
Right? And, and I found this passage, even as I studied this week, I've, I've found this passage uh, by commentators and scholars to be remarkably uh, gutted and ignored because of how it rubs against the, the pride in our hearts. And because, in all reality, we've lost any sense of what it means to live with joy as a man created in the image of God before the face of God. We've lost all sense of what it is to live as, uh, in joy as a woman created in the image of God to live before the face of God. All right? But this passage here, we'll see our, our differences, according to God, according to God's Word, our differences, they're good. Right? And they're good because God says that they're good, and, and they lead to flourishing in the church, and they lead to flourishing in our homes as well. And so I want to call us to something collectively this morning as we gathered. Right? We, we need to, at all costs, refuse to inwardly brood as if God's Word is ugly, as if God's Word is unfair, as if God's Word is wrong. And, and we must refuse, as Christians who profess that, that the Bible is God's Holy Spirit-inspired Word, we must refuse to ignore, apologize for, or modify passages in Scripture that make us uncomfortable. Amen, church? Right? This is one of the passages in the Bible that we tend to want to pretend uh, aren't there, but we need to be a whole counsel of God's Word People. So let's just take this morning this restful, collective Lord's Day deep breath, right? And we look at the words of Almighty God and work with the cooperation of the Holy Spirit of God to understand His Word, to, to cherish His Word, to be uh, warmly humbled by His Word, to rightly submit to His Word, praise God for Him, for His Word, and in humility, talk about His Word with other Christians in a way that honors Him, and in a way that represents the testimony of Christ well, all right? And so I'm going to pray, and then I have two points this morning. It's just two points, and we're going we're to unpack that for the entire sermon. So let me pray. Lord, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that it, it has been by your Holy Spirit kept pure in all ages, God. We thank you that it has the power to shape us, God, that it, uh, that it points us ultimately to Christ, God, who uh, sought us and saved us, Lord, who brought us into right relationship with you, God. We're so thankful for that, for that Lord. Christ is truly our cornerstone, God. And, and we confess, just as we confessed in the, the confession of saying earlier this morning, God, that we so often subscribe to doctrines taught by men. Help us to repent of that, Help us to be committed to doctrines found in your word alone. Help us to avoid the pitfalls of legalism, Lord, which is a distortion of your law, God, and antinomianism, anti-law, which also is a distortion of your law, God. Help us to be people who love you and love your word and love your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So my two points this morning. Point one is this. God created men to be men. And this is good, therefore be a man who fears God. Okay, that's point one. God created men to be men, and this is good, therefore be a man who fears God. My second point is like the first point. God created women to be women, and this is good, therefore be a woman who fears God. That's it. We could just close in prayer and leave, right? But though everything else this morning follows from those two points. And really, if we, if we were to do a, a, a biblical survey on manhood and on womanhood, we could fill this out quite nicely and we could see the gaps in our own thinking. I am not even talking about from a cultural standpoint at this, at this juncture, but we could see gaps in our own thinking as it relates to our various responsibilities to God. But, but think for a moment of the eternal impact we could have in our homes. Think of the eternal impact that we could have in this church. Think of the eternal impact that we could have in society if we got this fundamental thing right. And if this were my very last sermon to you this morning, by God's grace, this text preaches to us exactly what we need to hear in our day and age, which is fear God.
That's what we need to hear. That's what the church, uh, the American church needs to hear. Fear God. And when I say fear God, I mean we do so as a people that share an unbreakable, everlasting union with Christ Jesus. To fear God as a Christian is to, to have this utmost reverence for him. It's to have this utmost reverence for what he's spoken to us in his word by his spirit. It's to have this utmost reverence for how he set his world to function. And that reverence for him flows from us being covered in the blood of Jesus and being committed to glorifying our triune God and enjoying him forever. This is what it means to fear God. This is how we're going to be... This is how we're going to be salt and light in our society. Right? This is how we stand against cultural temptations and, and pressures to compromise. This is, frankly, this is how we fulfill the Great Commission. Right? As one who shares union with Jesus, as one who has the Holy Spirit of God living in you, as one who is committed to and submissive to the Scripture is one who's strengthened by brothers and sisters in Christ each and every Lord's Day. Fear God. Fear God. And this morning, we get a snapshot of what that looks like practically applied in a church wrestling with compromise, right? The church of Ephesus, as we've seen. And, and again, these instructions are given for the public gathering of God's church. This is how Paul expects us to function when we gather for public worship on the Lord's Day. So let's prayerfully, let's look at our text verse by verse. I, and, and that's exactly what I'm going to do this morning. I'm just going to go line by line in, in this uh, particular section. Look back with me. Um, and I would encourage you, just have your Bibles open in your lap here, but look back with me at verse 8 for a moment. Paul says, I desire that in every place then, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now there's four other places in the New Testament that in every place is in reference to, uh, and it's in reference every time to, to uh, the gathering, the public assembly. But I, I don't think that that's specifically what the Apostle Paul is, is, is targeting right here in this particular passage. I don't think that he's talking about locations per se, even though it could mean that, but I think he's speaking to men about making space for prayer, which would harmonize well with where we've been the last couple of weeks. Right? The Apostle Paul, he's charging men with the same urgent tone that we've seen as we've talked about prayer these last few weeks, and he's telling them never deprioritize uh, prayer, right? Prayer should always be the priority of a man. It sh- certainly should be the priority of every woman as well, but right here he's addressing men in the church. The men of the church need to ensure that we're a praying church. The men of the church need to ensure that we're a praying church, and this should be modeled when we're gathered, but this should be carried over to the home as well, right? How our, our priority of prayer when we're gathered here should make sense in light of our priority of prayer in the home, men. And, and, and I'm, the longer I've been in, in, in church culture, my observation has been that, that Christian women are way more diligent in prayer than men are, right? And, and that could have been one of the issues that the Apostle Paul is addressing at Ephesus, I'm not quite sure why this is an issue for men, but but it could follow from a man's kind of natural bent toward fixing things, right? Men men are prone to think that they're not dependent, at least functionally speaking, right? We we take pride in this sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps type of mentality. But men, think for a moment of how significant your prayers are. Your prayers, and I hope that we've seen this over the last few weeks, but your prayers are a a primary, not the only one, but they're a primary means that God uses to transform your home. It's a primary means that God uses to transform your home. Your prayers have the power, according to this passage, to shape a church. It can shape a church. Your prayers can shape a community. God uses prayer to work his kingdom 
on earth as it is in heaven. Right? Prayerlessness isn't a, a macho sign of strength. Right? A, a prayerless man is a weak, ineffective man. Right? A prayerless man is, is one who has his priorities all mixed up. Right? A, a prayerless man is an idolater because he refuses to bring his family, his, his church, his unbelieving friends, and his neighbors before the God who can transform them. Right? Instead, he brings them before himself. Right? He's a usurper of, of God's authority. He's made himself the savior of his people instead of bringing them before the actual savior, right? But keep looking because there, there's a certain posture that men are to have in, in, in this eternally significant work of prayer. Right? We see Paul say, pray lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Right? Pray lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Right? One historian says this about the lifting up of holy hands. He says, hands were normally lifted up or outstretched for both praise and supplication in the Old Testament, in Judaism, and in the ancient Near East culture along with Greco-Roman world. The Jews usually washed their hands before prayer, so pure or holy hands became a natural image for genuine worship. I, I think that the Apostle Paul here is kind of playing off of this, uh, this ancient custom, if you will, right? it, this tradition and, and what this tradition could symbolize, the pure, holy hands that Paul is commending. Right? It's not through the physical washing of hands. Right? The, 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 the washing that Paul is alluding to is the washing of the soul in the pure, sinless blood of Jesus Christ. All right, Paul is, is commending for us this tender, warm heart posture toward God for the men of the church, right? Especially as it relates to the public gathering. And, and, and this isn't, again, to say that the women of the church shouldn't pursue this as well, but God has ordered things in such a way that men are to set the spiritual temperature of God's assembly the way that men set the spiritual temperature for their homes, right? So, so Paul is targeting the inward man, and that's even further evidenced for us when he mentions both anger and quarreling. We can see that that is kind of his target, right? His target is the heart of man. Both anger and, and quarreling must have been issues for the men at Ephesus, not, like, not unlike men of today, but listen at how Christ speaks of anger, because I think that that can help us see why the Apostle Paul was so specific in his targeting of this with men, okay? Because we need to have our minds renewed by his words on a matter like anger. Christ, he connects it to the sixth commandment, right? Thou shalt not murder. And that helps to, to show, if you will, the sinister nature of our anger. Look at Matthew chapter 5 with me for a moment. I'm just going to read verses 21 to 26. All right, we see Christ saying these words. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, right, he's referencing the Old Testament here, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay? He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry, and again, Christ is targeting the heart here, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, okay, there's this public worship setting here. If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Last verse, 26, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Right? Anger is, is, it shares the same seeds with that of murder, according to Christ. That, that means that if you've ever been angry, according to Scripture, you're a breaker of the sixth commandment. Right? And, and just as murder, just as the murderer 
is liable to judgment, so is the man who burns with white, hot, sustained anger toward another person. Right? Christ speaks with the, 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 the precision of a surgeon here, and he makes it clear that anger is behind our lashing out at others. And, and the way out, according to Christ, according to the Scripture, is quick repentance. It's quick repentance. With a mindfulness and gratefulness toward God for His gospel, we're to go and make things right when we're the offenders. Right? We're to model as men, we should, we should model quick repentance. We should model, as men, humility. We should model, as men, what asking for forgiveness looks like, when in reality, we're the worst at asking for forgiveness, right? But Paul is, in effect, Paul is saying this. He's saying, how can you men be sinfully sustaining anger towards someone and come to public worship to worship and adore the God who has not sustained his righteous anger toward you. Now, some of us may grumble because we always think this. We may say, well, I have righteous anger. This isn't isn't referring to me. I have the ability to have righteous anger, and I just want to See, justice served, right? But what we aren't realizing is that even righteous anger becomes sinful in us as quickly as the sun goes down. All right, that, that's why we're reminded to not let the sun go down on our anger. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. The final thing we see as it relates to instructions to men to, to fear God and, and know that being a man is good has to do with quarreling, right? And that word quarreling can be translated as doubting or arguing or reasoning, right? It's the product of staying in your head. It's the product of staying in your head. And, and this is a timely thing for us as, I think, as men to hear because we hide behind our doubting. Men hide behind their doubting, right? We hide behind our debates over our opinions. We hide behind our reasonings. We hide behind our musings. And we do so often so that we can delay obedience to the Lord. If we really got down to it, we, we hide behind it so that we don't have to be obedient to the clear things that God is calling us to in our lives. For many of us, our wives have been longing for us to lead and to make spiritually healthy decisions for the family, yet we make excuse after excuse about that. And, and, And what we don't realize is that our lack of repentance not only affects the home as it does to its detriment, but it affects it affects the entire church as well. This is why it's being addressed as a corporate worship issue. This is why this is a corporate letter from Paul to Timothy to the church of Ephesus. We have to, as men, submit ourselves to Christ. And in our submitting ourselves to Christ, we can lead our homes and thus lead the church. So the way out is for us to repent of our endless reasonings. The way out is for us to stop hiding behind doubts or hiding behind, I just don't have enough information yet. And instead, we need to fear God, which is to say that we need to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need to commit ourselves to His church. We need to lead our families in the private and in the public worship of the Almighty God. As I was working on my sermon this week, I came across this charge from a pastor to, his, to the men in his church, and he said, he said this to his men. He said, do you feel stuck and stagnant? He said, you probably don't need more experts or coaches in your life. You probably don't need more bo- uh, podcasts, books, or courses. And I don't want that to uh, rub against me recommending two books at the end of this message, but... Um, They said, you probably don't need more podcasts or books or courses. What you need is simple, small, consistent obedience. There are at least one or two things you know that are displeasing to the Lord and bad for you in your life right now. Start there, 
pursue it or, or flee the sin and pursue something good in its place. On a related note, and this was the, the bit that struck me, he said, on a related note, accumulating more experts and more info is often just a way to feel like you're taking action without actually taking action. I know this has been true in my own life. And I suspect that, that I'm not alone in that. Men, God has, has called us to gospel-minded obedience. Right? Do what you know you need to do. And don't delay it, right? Standing on the righteousness of Christ Jesus alone, walk in consistent obedience to God's word. So first point, God created men to be men, and this is good. Therefore, be a man who fears God. Secondly, God created women to be women, and this is good. Therefore, be a woman who fears God. Look with me again at our text, starting with verse 9. We got through verse 8. Verse 9 here. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she'll be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Verses 9 and 10 here, and again, I encourage you to look at the text as I'm talking, but verses 9 and 10 here are certainly speaking to an ongoing issue at Ephesus. It it, it seems that, that women who were professing godliness, were, were dressing in such a way as to attract attention to themselves. So, so genuinely, Paul's saying, dress respectfully and modestly, which has behind it this idea of, of, of self-control. Right? The, the women on a large scale here, um, enough of needing to be addre- addressed in a, a corporate letter, were behaving in such a way as to, again, attract attention to themselves, right? And this manifested itself, this desire to attract attention to oneself, it manifested itself in a particular way in this society. It manifested itself with braided hair, with gold pearls, with with costly attire. And, And the principle that we need to carry over from this isn't that braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire is wrong, Right? Those aren't bad things in and of themselves, but the principle that we need to carry over is that women should never devote themselves to anything that contradicts their Christian witness and hinders them from doing genuine good in the local church. All right, I'm going to say that again. Women should never devote themselves to anything that contradicts their Christian witness and hinders them from doing genuine good in the local church. This isn't to say that men can't devote themselves to things that contradict their Christian witness. Right? That would be silly if that is what we take away from these instructions. But some of the women at Ephesus, they were cultivating, if you will, this inward obsession with the approval of man. Right? They, they were cultivating vanity. They were cultivating pride in the outward manifestation of that was the way in which they dressed. And just as the sins of anger, the sin of prayerlessness, which is a sin of omission, the sin of quarreling, just as that impacted the church at large on the men's side of things, so did this obsession with self and with material things impact the public worship and the public witness of Christ at Ephesus during this time. We're to be God-focused. We aren't to be focused on ourselves. Being consumed with yourself, being consumed with your world, prevents you from being able to devote yourself to the Lord, and it prevents you, quite frankly, from being able to love other people well. When you're so wrapped up in your bubble, there's no room to worship this triune God who sought and saved you in Christ. There's no room to, to, to love other people that God puts in your place because all you can see is yourself, 
and your vanity and your circumstances. And this gets to verse 11. Because Paul then begins to come in. He calls out these particular heart issues here and how they've manifested themselves outwardly. And then he gets to verse 11 and he says, Let a woman learn, pay attention to that word learn there, let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. Listen to how one commentator puts this to to help us understand what's going on. It says this, It may seem obvious to us, that women should be taught God's Word, since they're spiritually equal in Christ, and the commands of the New Testament are to all. It was not at all obvious, however, to those who came from a Jewish background, although the Old Testament elevates women to their proper place as people created in the image of God. First century Judaistic customs did not hold women in high esteem. Again, the traditions of men is what this, this uh, historian is saying. The traditions of man did not hold women in high esteem. While not barred from attending the synagogue, neither were they encouraged to learn. In fact, most rabbis refused to teach women, and some likened it to throwing pearls to pigs. Right? So a, a comment here quickly for us. Jesus had women who followed him, right? Jesus had women who learned from him and submitted to him, and he never never dismissed them or treated them as lesser, right? Think think for a moment even of the Samaritan woman at the well, right? It, It was scandalous in a way for Christ to speak to this woman, right? And not just because she was a Samaritan, but because she was a a woman. And not just because she was a woman, but she was a woman who had been divorced and was at that time living with a man who wasn't her husband. And our Lord had a conversation with this woman at the well that was transformative, right? It, It moved her toward repentance of her sin and faith in Jesus Christ, right? The records we have of Christ engaging with women should demonstrate to us what should be obvious to us that God created woman in his image, right? Women are image bearers. And Paul, in putting these women in a place of learning, in putting these women in a place of submissiveness, was in a sense restoring the view that women and men are created equal in the image of God. That's what we see going on here. He's telling the church, let the women learn and submit to the Word of God. And he's reminding women, and this is critical for us, he's reminding women not to squander what the Lord was giving to them. Right? He was reminding women not to squander what the Lord was giving to them. Now, how were the women squandering what God had given them? Right? The first way we already, we already see, the first way that they were squandering it was that they were devoting themselves to themselves. Okay, if you want to squander what the Lord has given you, devote yourself to yourself, right? And and that's what we see, uh, one of the things we see being addressed here, right? They were obsessed with self. They were self-consumed. They were materialistic. They were intentionally drawing uh, attention to themselves in the public worship of God, which was really just an overflow, if you will, of their self-absorption the other six days. And in doing so, they were squandering the opportunity to hear from God by hearing from His Word and submitting themselves to it. So Paul tells them to be quiet and to learn. Okay, the second way that they were squandering it is that they were trying to be men. The women were trying to be men. Look at the text for a moment. I do not permit, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. And and I did a word study on on that word teach, by the way, and it's mentioned 97 times in the the New Testament, and it always relates to Christ's uh, preaching ministry, uh, preaching himself. Um, uh, it, It relates to preaching about Christ, always in the authority of Christ. It's always connected closely. This word uh, for teach is always connected closely to authority over a man, or or to authority. And so you see, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. And then verse 13 and 14, Adam was formed first, all right, then Eve, all right, we see him grounding it in, in creational order here, 
right? Just the same way that marriage is grounded in the creation order, so we see these instructions about the public worship of God grounded in the creation order. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Instead of of glorifying God for the differences between men and women, these women were doing exactly what the Lord said that they would do because of sin. Look at what God told Eve after the fall. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. I think we have it up on the screen. It's the second part of verse 16. God says, your desire, speaking to the woman, your desire shall be contrary, right? She'll be in opposition to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This oneness, this celebration of God-given differences, this celebration of God-given roles, this harmony is, is how we should look at it. This harmony was broken by the fall of man. Right, The tensions that we feel between men and women and between even passages are a result of the fall, not a result of God's good created order. Right? And, and, and so we've exchanged this harmony that God has originally created, and in its place, we've replaced it with the despising of what God calls good. In the church of Ephesus, we have women striving to be men, and in our day, we, day and age, we have the exact same thing, right? And, and this isn't just in our society, which is obsessed with this religion of scientism that says boys can be girls, right? But this plagues the church as well. This plagues the church as well. In fact, this distortion has gone largely unaddressed in churches, demonstrating that the church is sadly never too far downstream from society. Right? It plagues the church in the disordering of our homes. Right? Men who are passive and lazy, and insecure, and aimless, and silent, which is sinful, is matched by women who in response to that are domineering, assuming a role in, in, in which they were never designed by God to have, which is also sinful. Right? And we see this in the assembly of the church when we forsake God's design, and we call it ugly, practically speaking. And and there's, there's things that we do as it relates to the public worship of God that we're going to talk about even next week when we get into chapter 3. But the ways that we see it plagued in, in the church is, 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 is in, in ways in which we, we lay hands on women for an office that the Lord says that women don't hold, right? The office of elder, right? And we put them in preaching positions. Again, we'll see this more next week. We see the same thing on the mission field, too. Yet Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over the man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. Let me, let me speak to a couple of issues as it relates to this specifically. There, there's a leadership culture in the context of many churches in which the men are not qualified to be elders. Right? There's many um, examples of that. And, and unfortunately, many times those men remain in places of leadership and thing, uh, uh, various types of abuses end up being uh, covered up, right? There, there's a harsh tone in the context of the church, right? There's a domineering spirit, right? Many of us are, are familiar with that or we've heard about it or we've experienced it in some shape, form, or fashion. But a couple of things that need to be said as it relates to that, because that's certainly uh, perhaps something that comes to all of our minds when we're working through a text like this. The first is this, The sinful abuses that we see in churches around male leadership is not an indicator that God's design for men and women is wrong, okay? And so that is not the right conclusion to come to, right? It means that there's sin that needs to be addressed. It means that there's sin that needs to be repented of. Our our response should not be to meet the sin of of the leadership culture with our own sin, right? Which would be for us to pretend that there's no difference between men and women by casting aside God's Word regarding male and female, specifically male and female as it relates to the church, right? So the second is this, right? It's no coincidence that Paul addresses the men first and urges prayer with a sincere heart posture, right? Encourage uh, encourages repentance from anger and repentance from quarreling, right? These very things, if not made a priority, will lead to an ungodly, domineering leadership culture in the church, right? The men of the church must walk in 
the light, right? And next week, again, we're going to look at the qualifications of, of male eldership as the Bible speaks about it, and we're going to talk about specifically the character of an elder, and we'll see how the Lord and His Word guards the well-being of His church. He takes that seriously. Now, before moving on from this, I, I want to note again for us, again, the passage is speaking about the assembly of the church. It's speaking about the gathering of God's church. That's the focal point here, and, and we see places uh, uh, in other parts of Scripture where women, particularly the, the older, more spiritually mature women, are uh, to teach other women, quote, what is good, right? which is connected to their relationship with their husbands, their relationship with their children. In Titus chapter 2, I would encourage you to go look at that. But the influence uh, and what we need to be mindful of, that an influence a wife has on her home will have an impact on the church far greater than she realizes. And the church needs to nurture that impact and esteem that impact back to its rightful place because we live in a society that has cheapened that God-given responsibility and our church has thus cheapened that God-given responsibility. And so we need to elevate it back to its proper place. I know that the men my boys will become will be in part due to the consistency in which my wife shows them Christ. Right? And, and women coming alongside of other women to help nurture and strengthen that most important task is a primary way I believe we as Christians fulfill the Great Commission. Right? Moms and dads, husbands and wives cooperating together according to the Scripture on nurturing and, and admonishing their children in the Lord will have a greater and more long-lasting impact than absolutely anything else we can spend our lives doing, I think, missionally speaking. So why do we cheapen that? Why do we cheapen that? Why do we elevate worldly pursuits above that? The answer is because we've been more shaped by the culture on manhood and womanhood than we have by the Word. Look at the next two verses with me, 13 and 14. Again, I've read them. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. A couple of things here for us. That word formed in verse 13 is used in one other place in the New Testament. Romans chapter 9, verse 20. And there it's translated as molded. Molded. Verse 20 says this, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded, there it is, say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Right? This is Paul speaking to the electing purposes of God. And in our text, we have it used as it relates to Paul grounding the dignity and the differences between men and women in the good created order. Right? Man was formed or molded by God according to God's good character and wise purpose. And he's designed to work and labor in God's world according to God's design. Right? Woman was formed or molded by God according to God's good character and wise purpose, and she's designed to work and labor in God's world according to God's design. Right? Both men and women will give an account to the one who formed them. But look at verse 14 again. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. If we go back to the garden, what do we see there if we go back to the garden? We see that Eve was deceived by the serpent, the dragon in the garden, who's, who is Satan. Right? She spoke to the serpent. She doubted God's word and even distorted God's word. She touched. Right? She ate. And then she gave the fruit to her husband, right? usurping both the authority of God and the authority of her husband. Right? In this sense, Eve was deceived, not Adam. But what was Adam's sin in this? Because we know that it was Adam's sin, and we see Adam's sin spoken of in the New Testament as the very thing that shook humanity to the core and by which we all inherit this sin nature and alienation from God, right? What was Adam's sin? And we could, we could look at this from all different kinds of angles, but I think his sin was one of omission primarily. Right? He was not the man of the garden, 
All right, he, he was to be the prophet, priest, and king of the garden. He, he should have protected, which is a masculine function, he should have protected Eve. He should have stepped in between Eve and the serpent, and he should have crushed the serpent's head. But he didn't. He, he was silent. He, he allowed his wife to be deceived, and then he joined her in her disobedience. Right, that should cause us for, to stop for a moment and to thank God for Christ, our good husband, right? right? Our good head, right? The, the one who did what Adam, and consequently we, because we sinned in Adam what we failed to do, right? Christ crushed the head of the serpent. Christ, our protector. Christ, our perfect prophet. Christ, our perfect priest and perfect king. He inaugurated the reverse of the fall, un- the, the, the undoing of sin, the undoing of suffering, the undoing of, of man and woman striving against one another. He inaugurated this good kingdom in his life and in his death and in his resurrection and in his uh, ascension to the right hand of the Father. And that leads us here to this last verse that I want us to see this morning, and I'll shut it down for us. It says, we shall, or yet she will, speaking of, of Eve, and but more general, or speaking of woman here, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Moving here, if you notice in verse 15, from the singular she to the plural they, I think indicates to me that Paul's speaking universally about all women everywhere. But there are a few schools of thought as it relates to this passage, and if you're interested, Jeff Williams wrote a commentary this week and and did a good job at putting a few different schools of thought together. You can go read that. But I want to give you what I think is going on here because I think it relates to Christ, who's the snake crusher in the garden. I think it relates to the kingdom of God. If we were to shorthand it, I would say it relates to the kingdom of God and the reversal of the curse, which is significant here. Right? Paul isn't saying that women are saved from their sins through childbearing. That's, that's not what's going on here. Right? We know from the testimony of Scripture that sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But what I think Paul's getting at, especially as he connects it, connects it to the qualifier at the end of this verse, if they, speaking of women, continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control, I think what Paul is getting at is this, right? We're living in a day and age that Christ inaugurated at his resurrection and his ascension. That's the day and age in which we're living now, right? That, 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 that is that the, the news of Christ, our snake crusher, is spreading, right? Christ is ruling, Christ is reigning, and moms living in light of the victory of Christ. And let's include for our purposes moms of biological children, moms of foster children, moms of adopted children. Let's put all of that in there, right? Moms who are continuing in faith and love and holiness and self-control, which is to say moms committed to God and His gospel are slowly reversing the curse of Eve, They're slowly reversing the curse of Eve. These moms are raising offspring to know and fear God that will have a ripple effect in the long term, generation after generation after generation. And I think that that's what Paul is getting at, right? And it's no coincidence that that God preached the gospel, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to Eve in the garden um, with the serpent present and with Adam present about the, the offspring of Eve, right? Many, 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 many generations after Eve would be long and dead, her offspring, which ultimately is Christ, is the one who crushed the head of the serpent, who did what her husband should have done but didn't do. And so there is this sense in which moms in the normal outworking, hard, mundane, nitty-gritty, no one sees what you're doing, parenting, right, that are trusting in the finished work of Christ, that are resting in Him for their their justification and their sanctification and their glorification, those moms are raising children that know, love God, fear the Lord, and by God's grace, they'll raise children to do the exact same thing, this slow undoing under the lordship of Christ over all things of the curse that we see in the garden. And that will happen, according to Habakkuk 2.14, until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
So what you do, men, is significant. What you do, women, is significant. Don't squander this birthright that God called good. Don't allow your thinking to be distorted on matters that God um, has, has said is beautiful. But fulfill God's plan for your life. Fear the Lord. Love the Lord. Fulfill the Great Commission. Some takeaways for us. One, God has designed his church to function decently and orderly, which is 1 Corinthians 14, 40. Men and women must joyfully submit to God's word in the public worship of God. Secondly, men, fear God and cultivate biblical masculinity according to the word of God. Get a mentor if you need one and get help. Women, fear God and don't allow your thinking to be influenced by godless ideologies that cheapen and despise God's design for your life. Get a mentor and get help. And two book recommendations uh, that I would uh, commend to you. And if you're looking for a mentor, and I would even just encourage this in our church, men, grab another guy and say, hey, let's go through this book together. Women, grab another lady and say, let's go through this book together. But two, two books I would commend. The first is called The Masculine Mandate. And so it's by a guy named Richard Phillips. It is a fantastic book on God's calling uh, for men. And then a second book uh, that is uh, equally as good by Rachel Jankovic is called You Who, uh, and it's geared toward women. And it, the subtitle is You Matter, Deal With It, um, which I love. And so uh, I would encourage you. So this, this goes in our library. Uh, and so the first person to grab it can check it out of the library and, and read it. Um, but I would encourage you to grab those two books and, uh, and find someone in the context of this local assembly to go through that book with and discuss it as we seek to be men and women uh, who fear the Lord. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for this time that we've had together in your word, Lord, and we pray that you would renew our thinking uh, by your word. God, help us to savor all that God is for us in Jesus Christ, Lord. We love you, and we joyfully come this morning to worship you, and we pray that we take that joy with us uh, the rest six days of this week, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is... uh...